The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I'm glad you um, took some time to tune in to our show today. Um, last month, we uh, did a show talking about the CDC report that we have had an increase in the rates of suicide that we really haven't seen um, occur uh, in the past 30 years. And as I share with you each and every show, um, I come to you live from Buffalo, New York at Crisis Services, where I serve as the CEO, and crisis centers across the country really exist to have someone always available 24 hours a day to be there to help um, access services, to provide intervention, and ultimately provide safety planning to help save a life. So effective suicide prevention requires various approaches to provide support and hope. Our approaches need to be diverse, and experts in the crisis response field continue to work to determine effective strategies to have impact with the goal of reducing the rates of suicide and ending the lives lost to suicide. Today, we'll be discussing some evidence-based telephone follow-up services in crisis intervention and suicide prevention that keeps callers connected to care and committed to their own safety. We will discuss the many ways follow-up programs can be implemented in a crisis hotline using the expertise of the response of Suffolk County and Long Island, New York, as an example. In addition, we'll be focusing on the lethality of loneliness as a risk factor for negative health outcomes and the use of telephone follow-up to mitigate this risk. But before I introduce my guest, I want to remind you that um, during the show, if you yourself are having thoughts of suicide or you have concerns based on what you're hearing for somebody else that you know, I want you to reach out um, and get some help and support. So please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. And for those folks that maybe aren't comfortable calling, they do also have a chat option if you go to the Lifeline Crisis Chat, which is www.crisischat.org. And also for my international listeners, the International Association of Suicide Prevention's website is www.iasp.info. And when you go to their homepage, if you click on resources, then their crisis center link, you'll be able to find your crisis center in your country. So as we begin our discussion today, if you do have any questions during the show, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. 
So I'd like to introduce my guest who's joining me today. Meryl Cassidy is a licensed master social worker and is currently the executive director of Response of Suffolk County, Inc. She's an assistant professor in the human services program at Suffolk Community College and is co-chair of the Suicide Prevention Coalition of Long Island. After receiving her MSW in 1983 from Columbia University, Meryl has spent the first third of her career developing and managing innovative housing programs for a variety of at-risk populations in Manhattan and in Queens. She moved out to Suffolk County, where she expanded her focus to include work with at-risk families and youth in clinical and agency settings, school districts, and with the Suffolk County Probation Department. Throughout her career, she has maintained a passion for training other social workers and human service professionals and sees that as a vital part of her role as Executive Director of Response. So, Meryl, I want to welcome you so much to the show. Thank you for taking the time out today to be on and talking with us. Thanks, Jessica. So why don't we start um, to share with our listeners a little bit about your agency response, maybe when it began, and maybe just a a brief overview of the various services you provide. Sure. Um, Response began um, in in much the same way as I speak to other directors around the country. We seem to share somewhat similar histories. Um, Forty-five years ago, uh, there was a young man who was feeling very, very alone at Stony Brook University, and he really unknowingly set in motion the beginnings of response. He, um, he almost succeeded in ending his life, and his story hit the news and sent real shockwaves throughout the university town. Um, a lot of people came together and said, you know, where can someone who desperately needs to connect with other human beings call any hour, you know, day or night? And the answer to that question became response. You know, a local um, minister um, donated space and, um, you know, a, a social worker in the area um, started contacting suicide prevention and crisis centers throughout the country, um, and this was before the benefit of the internet. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, to learn what other hotlines were doing, and this was a very idealistic time. You know, the early late sixties, early seventies, and they dedicated themselves to raising money and recruiting volunteers and board members, composing bylaws, um, and and so that's sort of how the agency was born. Um, our mission and. Um, you know, this was crafted fairly recently, um, is to provide people in crisis or in need of support with unconditional acceptance, compassion, and respect in order to lower anxiety and facilitate their innate coping skills. And that mission, you know, um, really speaks to um, our respect for people in crisis and, and that we see it as a collaborative process. We are Suffolk County's only 24-7 crisis intervention and suicide prevention center. We provide our services through our hotlines. We have a few different ones. We have a warm line called our support line. We have an online crisis counseling program. It's called Here to Help, uh, a bilingual hotline, Conexion. Uh, we're the area network provider for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And we do lots of community education and training programs, um, particularly in the um, middle schools and high schools in the 72 school districts in Suffolk County. Wow. Those are sort of our core services. 
Okay. So I know today we're going to be highlighting specifically the work around suicide prevention um, and some of the programming that you've set up. Um, what is the, you know, when we um, look at hotlines, what is the the, tip, the type of service that you provide on the hotline for suicide prevention? What would that look like to one of our listeners? Sure. Um, well, I mean, so the goal of any crisis hotline is is really to provide barrier-free access for people in crisis, any kind of crisis, 24-7, 365 days a year, so that, you know, there's no appointment, there's no fee, there's no waiting list, there's no eligibility criteria, there's no insurance forms. You pick up the phone or you go online and you can access um, a counselor, a live human being. And so any time we have the opportunity to de-escalate a crisis um, and help that person find their own best next steps by, you know, offering um, active listening skills and helping them sort of work through their crisis in whatever way they need to, we're really preventing suicide. We're, we're de-escalating. You know, we're preventing that crisis. As we know, you know, suicide, um, what leads to suicide is, is complicated. And so right. it can start with, you know, a, a crisis brewing. So anytime we have the opportunity to de-escalate, um, you know, we're, we're in a sense preventing. But on the, you know, somebody who is also... Uh, reaching out because they are having thoughts of suicide, we would have the opportunity to intervene. So there we move from prevention to intervention. Mm-hmm. And we talk to lots of folks who are having active thoughts of suicide. And so we want to work with them on how to keep them safe. Um, you know, the, the, the approach that most of us use is the safety plan intervention, um, you know, to, to then help, uh, you know, mitigate, uh, or prevent, uh, those suicidal thoughts from becoming suicidal behavior. Also, um, lots of third party calls, lots of people mm-hmm. calling who are concerned about a loved one. And there, you know, we have an opportunity to help them, um, figure out what the best next steps are. And it may be that they become the person who helps uh, the, the suicidal individual stay safe. Um, yeah, so, so lots of different ways that we can uh, either prevent or, and then even postvention. Um, so after uh, a tragedy occurs, we get lots right. of calls from people who are survivors of suicide loss, survivors of suicide attempts. We have a partnership with our area CPEP where we take referrals and work with people after they've been discharged from the hospital after a suicide attempt because, as we know, they're, they're at heightened risk. So right. if we can help them stay safe, then we are also, in doing our postvention work, we're also preventing. Right. Um, so, yeah, so on all of those levels, I think... You know, crisis centers and crisis hotlines, you know, can do prevention, they can do intervention, and they can do postvention. Um, so, so, you know, can provide services along all of those lines. And all three of those are so interconnected, like you said, because yeah. really that postvention is prevention in a way when you're looking at following up during that most high-risk time for people, especially after a hospital discharge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Through your time through the, in the field and the work around suicide prevention, what are some changes um, you've mm-hmm. seen during the years in responding to those with suicidal thoughts? Yeah, 
It's interesting. Um, the field of suicidology is relatively young, right? It's um, um, so it's exciting to be part of a field that is really learning so much. I would say over the past ten or fifteen years, there's been a real explosion uh, in terms of research in the field. Um, so one of the things I've learned, you know, in the eight or so years that I've been executive director here, is the sort of the old methodology, which was really just let's do a quick assessment and refer, mm-hmm. um, doesn't really work, that you really need to, be do, you need to be intervening at the moment when somebody presents um, in a suicidal crisis. So that's where the safety plan intervention became a, a really important um, a number of years ago when that came out. That became a really important change um, in some ways, validation of what we were already doing, but in some right. ways really drove home the, the importance of, of uh, having a, an evidence-based intervention approach. And so the safety plan, you know, provide, you know, which is, you know, a way to provide people who are experiencing suicidal ideation with a real specific set of concrete strategies to use in order to decrease their risk in the moment you know, becomes the, you know, becomes the intervention of choice and right. also will lead to our discussion about follow-up because um, one of the things we've, we've learned over the years is that it's not realistic to resolve everything within the context of one phone call. So right, absolutely. If gonna, right, if you're going to put a plan yeah. in place, you need to follow the person at least for a period of time um, where they become engaged in other treatment or in other ways of uh, keeping themselves safe. So uh, that really led to the focus on follow-up. Another thing we learned um, a lot about when we started our online program was um, non-suicidal self-injury. In 2006, when we started Here to Help, you know, kids would be coming online, starting the conversation with, you know, I feel like cutting tonight. And our counselors uh, and I um, got in a huddle and said, wow, we need to learn a lot more about this phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, particularly because a lot of kids were just being sent from their schools to the emergency room presenting with this behavior. Right. So we developed right. a whole training program around it and really dove into it. And um, that has become you know, just a part of what we do now. We do a whole assessment around non-suicidal self-injury and um, we do a lot of training in the community on this topic um, because hospitalization is, is often not the right thing to right. do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting as you've, you've talked about kind of the evolution of, of the work that we do on the hotline. So I just wanted to ask, what are the requirements that you have for the hotline counselors? I know we get asked that a lot so people understand. Yeah. What is the requirements and kind of background of, of your hotline counselors? So when someone's calling in, who is that person that's on the other end? Yeah, and I hope that there are people listening who are considering Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, absolutely our center is mostly volunteers Um, our overnight counselors are paid staff and we have licensed mental health counselors social workers case ex who are staff people but the counselors themselves are mostly volunteers and the requirements are that they be 18 years you know of age or older that they have uh, an open heart and an open mind mm-hmm. and that they're willing to make the commitment. And it's a significant commitment um, 
first of all, the training is extensive, and then we ask for, once the training is all complete, you know, we ask for a commitment. You know, they do a four-hour shift once a week, um, and we ask for at least six months to a year. But it takes almost oh, nine months to fully complete the training and the shadowing. After right. That. So, yeah. um, you know, so we have volunteers who come from really all walks of life, um, and many who have had lived experience in terms of being survivors of suicide loss or, or survivors of attempts. Um, but they come from all walks of life. About a third are college students just because of our proximity to Stony Brook University and other universities around in our community. Um, and, yeah, really run the gamut, all walks of life, and wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. Right, that um, want to give back and be there for, for others yeah. at that moment to really provide yeah. that type of support. I think it's important to stress, and I think one of the things that we, I know we do as, you know, executive directors of, of crisis centers is really highlighting the value of crisis center work and and the training and the um, responsibility that goes into the volunteer role on a hotline is significant. So I'm glad you were able to share that varied, you know, background and experience and expectation that... Um, Mm-hmm. is really laid out for all of us as crisis centers about who is answering these calls, um, the types of training mm-hmm. that are required. Because um, like mm-hmm. you said, it does take months to get a, a counselor trained. Yes. And, this, and, is a very unique, this is a very unique kind of a volunteer experience. And um, yeah, so 50 hours of classroom, at least 50 hours of hands-on training with a mentor, uh, ongoing training and supervision, both group and individual um, yeah, so we take the training piece and supervision piece very, very seriously here, uh, as I think all crisis centers do. Um, you want, um, you know, that mix of, uh, you know, being very well trained and also um, being, you know, having the real warmth and empathy, um, being able to really demonstrate that and being able to walk with people on their journey and understand and respect uh, that it is the caller's journey and, um, you know, we're here to support that journey, Um, you know, uh, so a lot goes into the training of our counselors. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll we'll continue to talk about that a little bit as we get into the other segments. So before we actually head into break, I wanted to remind our listeners that if you're having thoughts of suicide or as we're talking today, if it's really starting to bring up thoughts of your friend or your family member, your coworker, uh, your neighbor, um, know that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day that you can reach out to and talk with a counselor, counselors similar that Merrill have been describing, um, that are there for you to be able to review the situation you're dealing with and get you the immediate help and support that you'll need. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. And they also have an online um, chatting option, which is the Lifeline Crisis Chat, and that's at www.crisischat.com. So we are going to be heading into break, so please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, my guest today is Meryl Cassidy from Response of Suffolk County, which is located in Long Island, New York, and they are one of the crisis centers um, that provides immediate support 24 hours a day to individuals in crisis, as well as individuals who are thinking of suicide. Um, we talked a little bit in our last segment about uh, the services and the issue of suicide that Response um, deals with every day. Um, so, Meryl, I wanted to start off talking a little bit about um, um, in your hotline program, the follow-up piece we touched on last segment, the follow-up mm-hmm. services for someone who's suicidal. Can you talk a little bit or kind of explain what that type of service is? Sure. Um, I want to just uh, go back to very briefly 1980 when we started our support line as a way to um, identify the needs of the frequent hotline caller or the person who had a suicidal crisis that we, you know, identified as needing ongoing support. So back in 1980, we started the support line to address that. So we're very familiar with sort of um, having ongoing relationships with callers um, in that way. And then years later, when we started doing third-party follow-up, in other words, when a third party would call somebody who's concerned about another, we would offer an outreach call to the suicidal individual and then follow up with the third party, follow up with the suicidal individual. Similarly, with a first-party suicidal individual, we have follow-up that we do with them. But more recently, um, with grant funding, we were able to start taking referrals from both our mobile crisis team and our area, CPEP, our, our community psychiatric emergency program from Stony Brook Hospital, um, of suicide, uh, survivors of suicide attempts who um, were discharged uh, and remained at risk. 
Um, so the acknowledgement that these, these folks need ongoing support. Um, and so through grant funding, we were able to start getting referrals and working with people. And, and this we've been doing for about three years. Um, more recently, um, we've expanded that. And for the first time ever, we have a partnership with an area agency called the Association for Mental Health and Wellness, where we do follow-up with their care management um, clients who are at um, high-risk, high-need, high-risk clients. Um, and so we support the work of the care manager. We do ongoing structured telephone follow-up with um, the referrals from the care managers, and we report to the agency on our work every month. Um, so we are sometimes doing a uh, helping the care managers uh, support the wellness and recovery plan, sometimes doing a safety plan, sometimes doing both, depending on the needs of the individual. Um, so those are the follow-up programs we have in place right now. Um, and the, one that, the thing about the um, last one I mentioned is that we're actually getting paid. It's not grant-funded. It's an mm-hmm. uh, actual source of income for services rendered. So that's a new thing for us, and we're very excited about it. Well, I think that's just something, a, a plug out there for anyone that's listening in. The role of crisis centers in providing this type of service, if it's a fee-for-service mm-hmm. type of contract for other organizations, is really um, a trend we are seeing more and more of that partnership and that um, uh, that resource that the crisis center is really playing for agencies to meet the multiple needs and demands of their clients and their services. So that's great that you guys are, are doing that. Um, now, you mentioned that you're doing structured follow-up calls. So could you walk us through what an actual structured follow-up call looks like? Sure. Um, So let me try to roadmap it for you. Um, First of all, it it is considered a clinical intervention, um, even though it may may not be a clinician uh, delivering the service. It's supervised by a clinician, so it's considered a clinical intervention. It's especially useful because there's often significant lag time between um, between crisis visits or case management visits, you know, there's a lot of time in between when people aren't necessarily connected, and there's certainly lag time after a visit to an ED or an inpatient setting. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there, there can often be many days or weeks between care management visits. Um, so follow-up relies on the skills of active engagement and good rapport, um, all things that our counselors know how to do very well. Um, and all effective intervention will only take place within the context of that sort of a trusting relationship. Um, so active engagement is the first step, and then re-engagement during each contact is probably, you know, a very critical piece of every call. The goals are to provide support to enhance continuity of care, um, and support the work and the goals of the care manager, and obviously also to decrease social isolation during periods of increased risk. The calls are very structured, even though they are also supportive. They're, they're relatively brief, about 20 minutes, and they're very focused. And there are three steps to each call. Step one is where we're doing this mood check and risk assessment um, in addition to the re-engagement that we're doing. So how have you been feeling? How have things been going? We'd get that step started. 
Step two is where we're either creating or reviewing or revising either the safety plan or the wellness and recovery plan. Um, and that is kind of the bulk of the call. And then step three is um, discussing treatment motivation. There's motivational interviewing training we do, um, as well as any obstacles to treatment, um, reviewing tasks and goals to be worked on, and in this step, it's also really critical to obtain consent for further follow-up. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we do a training on this. And, you know, often the ending of a call is, is I find, some of the more challenging skills. And, but, you know, so obtaining that consent is, is a big piece of that third part of the call. So lots of skills used, lots of things going on, but, but also very structured and very focused. Now, the structured follow-up uh, type of service is is based on an evidence-based approach, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. And what can you can you talk a little bit about what that what evidence what that means um, for people that I mean we hear it, but what is that what does that mean? You no, know, it's a it's a term that's thrown around a lot. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, they're definite. I'm not going to be able to tell you exact all of the intricacies of it. I mean, to simplify it, it's. It means that there's a strong research or evidence base. Right, <laughs> so there's right. been lots of people who have researched this approach. Um, so we and and so I'll just mention some of the research. Um, and and so the research leads us to know that follow up really does work. That it has an impact on achieving the outcomes that we are looking to achieve, which is to lessen readmission to hospital and to keep people safe and engaged in the community and in their care and in their lives. Um, So in the world of suicide prevention, there were a number of studies that proved the effectiveness of follow-up. There was one in Australia that is fairly well-known. It was called Postcards from the Edge, where they saw a halving of readmission for self-poisoning within a two-year period that they just looked at that population. Um, They sent 12 postcards to patients checking in and letting them know someone cared. Uh, over over this two year period, and just by sending these postcards, they they were able to isolate that intervention. In the um, Safe Vet project, where they implemented safety planning and structured follow up, they saw a forty percent decrease in the incidence of suicidal behaviors within a six month period, and the vets that were in the project felt that it was life saving. Mm-hmm. And then the third study that. I think is important for our work was done by folks at Columbia University of callers to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline where 80% of those interviewed said that follow-up stopped them from killing themselves and kept them out of the hospital. Um, and then if you look on the Zero Suicide Initiative website, you'll hear Mike Hogan talk about this a lot, that it's part of, um, it's, that follow-up is a critical part of uh, the Zero Suicide approach and is considered to be an evidence-based approach. Now, we've, we've mentioned a little bit as we've been talking about safety planning. Could you just share briefly with our listeners what that actually means? For us, it's, it's secondhand to say I that. Uh, but I just want to make sure that the listeners know what that actually means. Sure. And I believe your listeners, can. there's an app, right? Um, there's yeah. ways to access. They just Google the SPI, the safety plan intervention. But it's based on, um, it's a collaborative effort between a treatment provider or a crisis worker on a hotline and a client. And it involves uh, a, a lot of client input. And it's based on six basic steps, right? The, um, 
first is recognizing the warning signs or the triggers of, of an impending crisis, sort of knowing yourself, knowing what, tri- what's tri- what makes you feel these, this way, what sort of thoughts, moods, situations, circumstances. And then the second step is using your own coping strategies to deal and this is a really critical piece, according to Dr. Stanley, is, is in terms of building self-efficacy, is are there ways you can cope? And lots of our call, I mean, this is where I think DBT is a really wonderful approach. I mean, there's so many different ways that even if it can distract you or soothe you in the moment, you know, you work with a person, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to try these things and see if it helps. You know, so you're, you're, you're building in this idea that um, this, this strong suicidal urge will abate, that this is not forever. Right. Uh, and then the third thing is contacting others in order to help distract from su- or soothe from suicidal thoughts. Then the next step would be contacting family members or friends that you feel safe that can help resolve a crisis for you. Um, and then if none of those things, you know, we don't rigidly stick to each step. This is a more fluid thing than in the way I'm describing it. <laughs> right, if none right. Of, none of those things work, then contacting mental health professionals or agencies and including that in the safety plan. And then finally, but probably the most important, is reducing the availability of means or keeping the environment mm-hmm. safe. Um, so that's, you know, obviously a very critical piece to any safety plan is, you know, do you have a plan? Is the plan accessible? Is it lethal? Is it available? Well, how do we disable that plan? Mm-hmm. Um, and getting creative um, with the person at risk to help, to help with that. Um, and so those are the six basic steps, um, you know, and, and it's, uh, it, as I said, it's a collaborative effort. It's something that takes quite a lot of um, collaboration for it to be effective. Right. And I think it's important that, you know, when we're in a crisis, it's difficult to um, find those coping skills right away. But if you have a safety plan pre-established that you have something you can reference and look at that helps you to kind of reorganize maybe your thoughts at that moment and know who are your your safe people to reach out to or safe agencies to reach out to, it really is a great tool um, in that moment. We can't can't process. So, right, right, you're absolutely right. Having a template, having it written down, you know, so that you don't have to remember it. It's right there for you. Yep. It's right. absolutely uh, critical. Now, what have you seen different since you started your follow-up services on your hotline? Well, um, definite increase in the number of outgoing calls. That's when we look at our um, the time we spent, our councils are spending um, over the years, uh, significant portion are outgoing calls as well as incoming um, lots more staff involvement, um, and I think the counselors feel that staff involvement and staff support, um, so lots more. It's almost um, been the impetus or the, it's initiated a lot of uh, good collaboration between staff and volunteers, make them work more as a team. Mm-hmm. Um, for callers that are... Um, um, Part of follow-up is setting limits and being comfortable with setting limits. I don't, I don't know if this makes sense, but um, that's part of the training is how do you respectfully set limits in a way that makes sense. So for, for our support line callers, they are 
um, the the limits have have been a good strategy for them. Um, you know, we are a resource they can count on, and and um, they you know they're comfortable with those limits, and they work with us on them, and they understand them, and um, so that's been one outcome, unanticipated outcome, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, just, you know, a higher level of training and supervision um, right. is embedded in this approach. Um, and I think that's all good. I think it, it works toward the benefit of our callers. I think they end up getting a higher quality of, of mm-hmm. service. You know, Absolutely. Really. Uh, we have just a few minutes till we're heading into break. So I just I wanted to see if you could share, how do you measure your effectiveness with this type mm-hmm. of service? Well, that's something that we work on all the time. Um, there are so many different ways to measure outcomes. So the, and every time, I don't know if you've experienced this, Jessica, but every time you set a, a, a certain measures, it leads to more questions. And more <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but so some of the outcomes that we look at are, uh, we try to measure the degree of engagement. And so how do you measure that? Well, one way is just the the number of contacts, utilization, you know, the number of contacts, the time spent, and, and um, you know, are the goals being met? And so the, the degree of engagement is something we look at. We look at... Um, we have the ability to look at this, the actual safety plan intervention that is created because it's in our, you know, it's, it's, it's a document that we're able to, to go back to and then we're able to look and see is it implemented and, right. is it, and how is it going. Uh, we look at um, another, another uh, way to measure engagement is um, consent for continued follow-up. So are our counselors doing, you know, how are they navigating that, and what does that look like? And are callers, you know, agreeing to continued follow-up? And what are callers saying about wanting to continue with this follow-up? Right. Um, the other thing we look at are linkages. How successful are we in linking people to treatment um, or to resources in their communities? So it doesn't necessarily have to be treatment. It could be getting to the library or getting um, to that family dinner that the caller was, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, so anxious about. Um, and then, of course, we look at um, are we being successful in avoiding unnecessary rehospitalization? Right. That's a biggie. That is That's a, a big very one. big yeah. one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> everybody is interested in in our county. Um, and also reattempts. You know, we look at um, during the period of time where we've engaged this person in follow-up, have there been any rehospitalizations or reattempts? Right. Um, and then, of course, within the context of any crisis call, you want to see if there's been a difference in the level of anxiety from the beginning and end, or and or the level of suicidality at the beginning and the end. So there are certain things, you know, sort of embedded in every call that we look at. Um, so those are, you know, so we measure all of those things. I mean, those are things that, that we have, a, you know, somebody who does quality assurance and who's on those things all the time. We've got, you know, in iCarol in our system and in our phone system, we have all this software. Um, I'm not the expert on those things, but there are people in the agency looking at those things all of the time. Right, <laughs> I'm right, just the person who says, I just want to know the answer to this question. Right, <laughs> right. You know and how mean? are we going to measure, yeah, how are we going to get that right. information? and you help me work backwards that. from there. Yeah, yeah. So, lots, you know, right. lots of effort goes into um, looking at outcomes and measuring outcomes. 
Okay. Well, we're going to be heading into break. Um, my guest today is Meryl Cassidy from Response of Suffolk County. So um, as we've shared throughout the show so far, if you're having thoughts of suicide or you need to reach out to somebody, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com now back to the journey here again is jessica pira Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Meryl Cassidy, and we've been talking about um, the response work that's done by crisis hotlines um, across the country, but specifically highlighting the work of Response of Suffolk County that's located in Long Island, New York. Um, so, Meryl, I just I wanted to shift a little bit to talk specifically about the issue of suicide, and I know that there are a few areas that when we talk about suicide that are really critically important for us to be aware of and paying attention to. So, can we talk a little bit about the impact of social isolation when it comes to suicide. Sure. Uh, This is a topic I've become very interested in um, because it's a common theme we hear on the lines, uh, both with our support line callers and with our other high-risk care management clients and others. Um, So social isolation is sort of a circumstance um, where you're either you are either cut off or feel cut off from the world, or um, you know you 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 know that it's a it's a circumstance that either you didn't have control over or that you're consciously cutting yourself off from, or you, and the feeling associated with that is loneliness and uh, social isolation and lone, loneliness. We know put people at significant risk if if you look at Joyner's interpersonal theory, you know, both the idea of thwarted belongingness, not feeling like you belong, and the idea of perceived burdensomeness, we're feeling, you know, 
that you're a burden, you know, can be connected to social isolation and loneliness. And when I started really looking at this, I, I, it, I was kind of shocked. I mean, the prevalence of loneliness has increased dramatically over the past 40 years. It, in 1980, 20% of people reported feeling this way, and today it's more than doubled. Um, and it's stigmatized. Um, we wouldn't deny feeling hungry or thirsty. Why would we deny feeling this way and not listen to our bodies and minds and go out and seek connection? Um, there are all sorts of bad out health outcomes associated. Uh, over 45% of people living with loneliness, you know, it, it's seen as a cause of premature death, more than air pollution or obesity or even alcoholism. And so there are a couple of really good books I would refer people to. There's one called The Lonely American by Dr. Jacqueline Olds, and there's a book called Alone Together by Sherry Turkle. It's not just elderly people, it's young folks, you know, who have the, you know, double-edged sword of the internet, Who and us too, we're connected to our mobile devices, it mm-hmm. gives us this illusion of being connected, but we're not really um, together, um, and the number of people living alone in the United States has increased, it's one in seven households, it's more common than the nuclear family, so those statistics just sort of blew me away, um, so the good news is you're not alone in your aloneness, um, you know, the number of people we can talk to, uh, you know, and have real conversations with are diminishing. I talk to young folks and they, you know, they don't have conversations. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really um, going on a campaign to to have more conversations, you know, that don't involve mobile devices. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and the folks we work with, they're on the social perimeter often. And so this is not only sad and... Uh, heartbreaking, but it's also dangerous. So when when we feel isolated, it can be a very dangerous circumstance for us. It it snaps us into self-preservation mode. You know, the lonelier the brain, the less activation in the in the part of the brain that controls empathy. And you start living mm-hmm. in this kind of hypervigilant state where you feel that there are threats all around. You know, very anxious state, more corti- stress hormones being pumped out. You know, you wake up in the morning this way, you go to bed at night that way. Um, there's a quote, you know, the end of the day doesn't bring an end to the high alert system. It, you know, if it's dangerous to fend off a wild beast by yourself with a stick during the day, imagine how dangerous it is to lay that stick down at night when predators mm-hmm. are out and you're alone. And this is what we hear from folks on the lines. They just, you know, it, it just affects every aspect of their life. Um, every aspect of their life. So it's, it's been something that I've been really concerned with. Um, and I think that we have a huge role to play on the crisis line. You know, the moment you pick up that phone or the moment that person who has taken the brave step, and I realize it is a very brave step, if you are isolating yourself and withdrawing from folks as a coping mechanism and, and you take that courageous step to reach out to us and pick up that phone and call, um, you know, the moment that our counselors pick up and say hello response with that warm voice tone, you're, 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 you know, you're making a connection, you know, right. you're Absolutely. making that connection. So, I, you know, I can't say enough about the, how concerned I am about this issue and, and how huge a role I think we have on the crisis line um, to do something about this. Um, right. You know, well, it's interesting. It goes back to follow up, you know. Yeah, it really does. 
It's interesting as you were talking. I mean, it's it's showing the evolution too of just our society in general, and you know how technology has really shifted relationships in general. But now also um, that, like you said, the isolation that we become, the relationship is with the with the device, and and Correct. who's who's you know posting on the device or sharing on the device instead of the actual interaction, human interaction, if you will, that we um, would have previously um, that we could check in with somebody if if you know just even based on the tone of their voice or how they're looking we don't necessarily even see people as much anymore because we're texting or we're um, on Facebook or sharing here and sharing there and it's just such an it's such an important um, piece you know as you were talking it was just it kind of is that reminder of how Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we're reinforcing that human connection Mm -hmm. to help address loneliness. The importance uh, of listening, right? Absolutely. And I don't want to suggest that um, being alone or, so, there's, you know, having the capacity for solitude and self-reflection is very important, but that's very different from feeling, you know, the, the loneliness and the, and the deprivation that comes with that. Um, and when we lose that, it's this weird paradox, especially that our kids have, where they're constantly connected and their focus is constantly um, shifting. Um, And yet, it's not the real connection, you know, it's not the real connection that comes with, um, you know, uh, conversation and real listening. So, you know, the, you know, the active listening we teach our counselors, you know, that's, that's such an enormous gift. Because right. I, we hear it time and again from our callers, nobody listens to me. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. And so we do. We really do. And we really care. Um, and so we don't just talk the talk. We really do walk the walk when it comes to that. And, and as far as being a risk factor, I mean, it's, it's, the research is there. Um, it's one of the leading, if not the leading, risk factor. And, of course, it's tied into every other um, you know, if when you isolate yourself from your friends and family and withdraw, if you're also, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, well, that's not going to help, right? Mm-hmm. If you're also self-harming, that's not going to help either. Um, so, yeah, all of these things are interconnected. But in my mind, the social isolation piece can, can really be a big um, core issue here. Absolutely. Now you had benched, you know, you touched on children. Um, and like we said, the generation that we have now with how technology is and the way they interact is very different. Um, so they're learning a different way of um, interfacing with even their family, their friends and the community in general. So there was a question that came in kind of specifically um, with kids. So maybe between the two of us, we might be able to, to give some thoughts. So the question is, um, is there any way to deal with the the issue of suicide prospectively with kids. So is there any educational approaches that parents can take with kids before they experience problems or depression? So if the kid is feeling okay now, what are things that parents can do to help maintain that healthy mm-hmm, balance, mm-hmm. I think is what they're looking for, some feedback on. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts to yeah. that? Well, the first thing that I think of, I mean, there are some excellent programs out there in schools. One of them is called Sources of Strength. SOS, if you want to Google it, and it's all about building resilience, um, and it's all about helping kids, you know, um, use what the relationships, you know, healthy relationships, good coping skills, 
Um, Funny enough, the ability to gen, generosity seems to be mm. a mitigating factor. The ability to to help others and to become involved in your community seems to be hugely beneficial. Um, so, if you look at the sources of strength model, it's a circle with lots of different pie uh, slices <laughs> that all can help support uh, resilience in kids. And I think, yeah, I think you're you're uh, the person who wrote in is right on target with that. Is that Really, what you want to be doing is building that resilience, build, you know, and it's got to be very individualistic. It's got to be, you know, what are this individual's strengths and resources and how can I build on those, you know? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And I think the, just the, um, you know, I think is the compassion and empathy, I think, is a piece, oh, too, yeah. that is such a struggle when we look at um, society today. And I know we struggle sometimes when we see, um, especially online, some comments um, after stories are posted and just the, the lack of compassion and empathy that I think people don't realize the power of their words and how that yeah. really can influence somebody like you've been describing who's isolated and alone. Um, and then they're getting these negative messages continuing to reinforce their thoughts. It really can push someone to that, that, place of, of wanting to yeah. take their life. So we have to yeah. remember how powerful our words and actions are for people that we know and maybe even people that we don't know, um, yeah. you know, that yeah. we might interface with. So um, yeah. it's really a, a community effort to make sure that we're providing support and, and compassion for our residents and our, you know, members of our yeah. society to pay. Yeah, so, you know, um, yeah, see, if you see someone in pain, um, what can you do to support that person rather than bring them down? Yeah, it's so powerful. So powerful our words are, um, especially online or through text. Because it's, you don't have um, the voice tone. You don't really know how it's meant. It can be interpreted in so many different ways. So we need to take such great care in those venues that we, do you know what I mean, that we express Absolutely. ourselves, you know, so carefully. Yeah, absolutely. And use it for good, not for harm. Right, right. It's yeah. an important message to to share today. And I think, you know, the other piece I just want to highlight, and you, you've really spoken to it and just how passionately you're you're presenting how you guys work at Response. And um, really that's equivalent to all crisis centers, I believe, across the country, mm-hmm. that the goal of the counselor is the, to be there for that caller, to be mm-hmm. that lifeline, if you will, um, when they might not have anybody else to talk with. Mm-hmm. Um, or provide support because, like you mentioned, with some of the statistics, we have more people living alone than with larger families, like we used yeah. to. So sometimes their only um, positive supports may be a stranger, um, like right. a, a counselor that they're calling and reaching out to. So I think you provided such a nice, um, you know, picture of of the crisis hotline worker, and it's you know our goal and purpose um, to be there without judgment, um, to be there with compassion, um, and to really highlight um, what's available to people when they're feeling that isolation and and being alone. Um, Meryl, is there any? Um, you know, we're just heading, going to be wrapping up in just a, a minute here. Is there an, um, any contact information you want to share, maybe your agency's mm-hmm. website or any other projects that you're working on? Mm-hmm, sure. First of all, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, if folks want to reach out to our crisis hotline, the number is 631-751-7500. Or if they want to go online, our website is responsehotline.org. 
Um, and so that's a real, uh, that's another real easy way they can reach us. Um, we're working on, you know, an app so the end user can, you know, reach us more easily. But in the nice. meantime, you can do it from your mobile device. <laughs> you can get to the website uh, right. and look for the link to here to help if you want to speak with an online counselor. Great. Well, thank you so much, Meryl, for spending some time with me today and really highlighting your efforts um, at your organization and really continuing to paint the picture of the role that crisis centers can play um, for anyone um, that's in need and in our community. So I just want to leave our listeners again with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. And also there's a chat um, option with the lifeline, and that's www www.crisischat.org. And for my international listeners, the International Association for Suicide Prevention is www.iasp.info. So thank you for tuning in and joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Join me every week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you have any questions or comments, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in today and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.